Hello, and welcome to the Libertarian Podcast from the Hoover Institution. I'm your host, Troy Sinek, joined, as always, by the Libertarian himself, Professor Richard Epstein, Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution, as well as Professor of Law at NYU and Senior Lecturer at the University of Chicago. Today, light squared, the FCC and property rights. Uh, Richard, the topic that we're going to talk about today is an important one. Uh, it's also a technical one, however. So I'm, I'm going to ask you up front to explain some of the issues at work here, uh, and I'm going to ask you to do it as if I were in the sixth grade. We've we've done enough shows together. That's probably your default anyway. Well, so, it is <laughs> absolutely right, but you're not the only person in the sixth grade. I, I think most people, when it comes to spectrum, they have very little clue as to how the thing is organized. So let me sort of go back to the beginning. Yeah, and you know, the Roman law of spectrum was very easy. There was none because the uh, information that's contained in the spectrum, that is, the band of frequencies that goes from very small to very large, um, could not be tapped until you got into the earliest part of the twentieth century. And at this particular point, the initial allocation of the spectrum was just helter-skelter. People would broadcast and they'd interfere and they'd do something else. Uh, the thing became serious in earnest in 1912 when it became quite clear that the codes that could have been used to save the Titanic and the set of information that could have been transferred from ship to ship um, was not organized. So right after that, uh, Congress passed the first allocation statute, which essentially assigned huge chunks of the um, spectrum to the Navy. Then some of it was done for civilian use. And instead of having ship-to-shore radio, you now had general broadcast that started in the 1920s. And slowly what happened is that the United States decided that it was going to put together the spectrum as a system of property rights where the United States was the only owner of the system. And it would then license out on particular terms some fraction of the spectrum to other individuals. Uh, the initial allocations had to do with radio and television and there were these elaborate administrative proceedings. And then as one starts to get the broadband, that is those large chunks of spectrum that could be used for telecommunications and so forth, uh, we've had all sorts of complicated auctions and efforts to put the spectrum together. Uh, right now, if you were to look at the case just before Light Squared was um, organized by Phil Falcone and Harbinger Capital in 2010, there were two major networks out there with very wide band capacities. One Verizon and the other is AT&T. And what um, Harbinger Capital was able to do was to put together an elaborate set of deals with a number of multiple providers so that they could create a third large and comprehensive band, um, which they could then use to organize a system for delivery that would be roughly on the scale of the two established networks. And what they did is they entered into an elaborate agreement with the FCC in which the FCC said to Harbinger, we know that you want to acquire the spectrum and we're going to allow you to do that and we'll approve all the transfers that are needed. But we want you to make sure that you're going to invest a very large sum of capital, close to $2 billion, and to build this out to certain specifications, most of which had to be achieved by 2015, a fairly rigorous schedule. And so the acquisition was then taken over. 
Harbinger then put the $2 billion or so into the Light Squared network. It entered into a variety of contracts with very notable third-party suppliers, Siemens, Nokia, uh, and so forth, Motorola. It launched a billion-dollar satellite. And at that particular point, uh, the theme thickens because another player comes into the situation, the GPS companies, the global positioning systems, which represent uh, a triumvirate of companies. And what they do, in effect, is they get signals back and forth to the ground so as to allow them to tell people where it is that planes can go, how they can land. They're very important with respect to agriculture. It's a huge industry. And they have a band that is located near the Harbinger bands, actually between the two of them. So what happened, unbeknownst to Harbinger, was that the GPS systems used the band that was to be occupied by Harbinger for developing its network for what is called listening in which meant that although it broadcast on its own frequency, when it got things back from various other sources with which it interacted, it came over the Harbinger frequency. And it became very clear that once Harbinger were to build out its network through light squared, uh, that you could no longer listen over that spectrum. And at that particular point, the question is what should be done? And this goes in two stages. The non-controversial stage is concerned of what we call out-of-band admissions. That is, the spectrum is not just a point. It's sort of like a sine wave. Your peak frequency, it's a very high sort of intensity. And then as you move away from it, it gets lower and never goes to zero. So there's always a question of what kind of interference you're going to tolerate at the border. Because if you set that figure at zero, nobody will be able to broadcast anything. So you develop a series of conventions as to how much of your signal can bleed over into somebody else's spectrum. And Harbinger entered into a lot of deals with the GPS companies where they were able to organize that. But the listening in on your own spectrum, the FCC rules had always been you listen at your own risk and then I could talk about it a bit later, is the conflict over the use of the light squared spectrum by the GPS became the crux of the situation which led eventually to the cancellation of the original Harbinger license off a light squared in uh, February of 2012. Okay, so explain that a little bit because – and correct me where I have any of this wrong. I'm trying to act on behalf of the audience here to make sure that we've got everything sort of straightened out. The the area of conflict between the two of them came from these areas where GPS was using that portion of the spectrum, but GPS actually had not had it um, leased to them from the government. This was supposed to be light squares, the space that light squared was going to be getting, yes. correct? Yeah. Uh, does, does GPS have any recourse there uh, by virtue of the fact that they had already been using it? Does that matter at all, even if it wasn't what they were licensed to use? It's a great question. The answer to that issue is no. I mean, first of all, whenever you deal with government spectrum, it's the terms of the licenses that are very explicit, and you can't get basically a swarm of you know, adverse possession by long use. Uh, the second point is the FCC rules realize that the listening in problem is not unique to GPS. And they've always provided quite clearly that if you listen in on somebody else's spectrum, you can do so 
for as long as you want, but you cannot use that in order to block them from broadcasting. Or in other words, you listen in at your own risk. And if you think about it, it's perfectly sensible. Um, Think of a piece of land and somebody looks over it. You could look at the land. You have no idea who's looking over that land. And you have no idea when you acquire a spectrum as to who's listening in on over it. So uh, what the FCC rules quite correctly have done is they put all the onus and all the burden on those who listen and none of the burden on those who broadcast. And you have to do that. Otherwise, every time you get some spectrum, you're then going to have to deal maybe with the GPS companies, but maybe with five or other six other people who are also listening in over your spectrum. So uh, the answer is there is a clear delineation of rights. And when the license got canceled, what happens is the FCC upset the previous understanding because the GPS issues are interests are very powerful and amongst others they represent the Department of Defense and indeed the Defense Department is so powerful that in one of the appropriations bill that was passed after the dispute came to a head um, it basically said quite specifically that the FCC could not undo its suspension unless it went through an elaborate notice and comment hearing giving all parties including the Defense Department the opportunity to comment on the change. So what they did is they managed to freeze into place the uh, suspension of the light squared licenses uh, by legislation. I want to ask you about some of the legal implications there. But first, just so that we are, are clear on this point, what would the implications have been for GPS by not being able to have had access to that part of the spectrum? Oh well, I mean, it's it's clear that there would have been implications, but they're not necessarily a shutdown. You could do this in several ways. One, and by the way, I want to make it clear: I actually have consulted with and worked for uh, the Harbinger Capital, not for LightSquared, which is a separate entity, but the Harbinger firm. Um, what happens is you can redesign your scuppers, your hearing aids, so that they can gather information with greater reliability solely within the confines of your own spectrum. And it turns out that the uh, Harbinger people actually got a consultant, the Jared firm, and what they did is that you could do it in this particular way. And somehow or other, that was never taken up, either disputed or in fact adopted. The second thing that the government can always do is it can dem out the spectrum like it's any other piece of property, saying our uses for listening are so important that what we're going to do is to condemn this for you for the fair market value of the spectrum in question. Now, the moment you think about that, you realize it's not going to make a lot of sense. Uh, the spectrum development is extremely intensive. That is, when you actually look at the AT&T and Verizon bands and see the amount of information that they pack into that space, it's just huge. And the listening is a relatively low intensity use. And the third thing you can do, and in fact, once this was, suspension was announced, Harbinger proposed this. It says what we'll do is we'll lower our frequency on the bands nearest to you and we'll silence some fraction of it so you could listen on some, not all of us, which is a concession as a matter of law that they're not required to make. And that didn't take at all. In fact, one of the things that's so perplexing about this case is why ne- renegotiation proved to be completely impossible. So walk us through the the legal landscape here. How does the difficulty in a contractual agreement like this where the government is a party contrast with an arrangement where it it would be two private parties? Okay. Well, that is there are two issues in this case. One of them is the arrangements between the GPS companies and the um, Harbinger, which is not a contract issue. And the other is the question of how it is that the contract that was made between Harbinger and the United States should be understood. Right. Uh, the lead lawyer um, 
for Harbinger in the government case is a man named Chuck Cooper. And he was the lead lawyer in a case called Windstar against the United States, which stands for the proposition that in dealing with contractual arrangements with the federal government, ordinary principles of contractual interpretation apply so that the government doesn't get the same kind of benefits that it gets when you're talking about, for example, legislation and regulation and their enforcement where there's a lot of deference. And so if you then figure out what these principles are, first of all, there is a bargain. We will make sure that this license can work and allow you to transfer the stuff to um, take control over Light Squared if you agree to put in $2.0 billion worth of money. And not only was there an executory agreement, they actually put the money in. Uh, so you have a contract and you also have reliance on the government's promises. So it seems to me that it's very difficult within the general Windstar framework uh, to say that there's something about this case which is peculiar. But, you know, I've litigated with the government before and I think I've talked on this show about the Fannie and Freddie situation. And there the government is also accused of a breach of contract to with the first bailout that took place in 2008. And it's amazing the number of procedural and jurisdictional and various other kinds of preliminary motions that you could raise. So no lawsuit against the government is ever easy, no matter how strong your case. Now, the other suit is against the GPS companies. And this is a mistake a non-disclosure, uh, concealment kind of case. And the basic argument is we talked to you God knows how many times about all of these things and we talked about this OOBE stuff before we acquired the light square. And you never once mentioned to us the OOBR, the fact that you're receiving over these things. And frankly, if you had told us at the time that you were going to raise a rumpus about this, we would have never invested the kind of money that we did in order to buy a lawsuit. And indeed, we're not the only persons who relied on this. Everybody with whom we entered into contracts relied on all of this stuff as well. And indeed, once the license was canceled, all of those secondary arrangements went out. Uh, so there is basically a kind of concealment misrepresentation claim, which is being prosecuted by uh, a firm in Chicago lead lawyer named Gary Eldon. And then there's this other suit, which is being brought against the government for breach of contract. The measures of damages are different, where you sue are different. Uh, at that point, this becomes just a huge technical kind of issue. But I think I've laid out the basic fundamentals of the arrangement. So final question then, Richard, to take us back to kind of the philosophical first principles mm -hmm. here. You mentioned at the top of the show the government making the decision early in the 20th century to mm -hmm. get involved in managing the process of, of how this space is used. Um, for the purposes of classical liberal philosophy, was was that sort of the original sin of this whole process, that the government centralized that? Or is that something that even a good libertarian says is necessary in a situation uh, like this where you have to have a coordinating method for figuring yes. out who's using what? Well, it turns out the two methods are top-down and bottom-up. Bottom-up does not work because the number of people who can occupy the spectrum in inconsistent fashions, particularly with modern technology, is infinite and the time gaps between the rival claimants is virtually a millisecond, so it doesn't make any sense at all. But because it's top-up doesn't mean that it has to be licenses that can be suspended. What they should have done was something that was suggested by Ronald Coase in 19. 
59 and a man named Leo Herzl some years before in 1951 is they could have organized whatever frequencies they had and then sold them off. And at that particular point, what you do is you have strong ownership claims. At this point, there is no government as a licensor, so it can't cancel anything. Now, in effect, what happens is the government, if it wants to come in, has to come in by way of condemnation. If the GPS people want to come in, they have to purchase because otherwise they could be enjoined against the trespass of the spectrum. So it's the system of weak property rights that creates all of this difficulty and the consequences afterwards have been just unreal. What I've talked about is the tip of the iceberg. Uh, but within a matter of months, Light Squared now goes bankrupt. Then there's a huge fight as to how the company is going to be defied. Their efforts to try to take the thing over, their political maneuvers to try to reinflate the licenses that would otherwise exist. Right now, this thing is being fought in the bankruptcy court as well as in the New York courts as well as in the D.C. courts. And all of this stuff happens because when you get weak property rights, it's always in somebody's interest to upset the apple cart. And I think the technical staff at the FCC understands this pretty well. And in fact, one thing that's so ironic is there's a woman named Mindel de la Torre. And what she said is, you know, this is a very odd case. Uh, we got this wide road and we've got the Harbinger Lane over here for Light Squared and we've got the GPS Lane over there and the GPS wants to run its trucks over both parties' lanes. And that's the old trespass property line. And that trespass property line works when the rights are strong but obviously in an administrative state where the licenses are all subject to government control, you then have to bring much more complicated actions in contract law and the whole thing tends to unravel. No matter which way this case comes out, there have been tens, probably $10 billion in social losses that have been generated by this fiasco up to date. All right. Thank you, Richard, and thank you to our listeners. Remember, you can find Richard's weekly column, The Libertarian, by visiting Defining Ideas at hoover.org. And you can follow him on Twitter at Richard A. Epstein. For the Hoover Institution, I'm Troy Sinek. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution. For more information about our work, please visit hoover.org.